I would like to read our scripture for the day. We're going to open up the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. And I'm going to read to you 1 through 8, though we're going to focus on verse 3. 1 through 8 says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. That's the word of the Lord. Now, this message, I really, I really want to spend a lot more time than you guys want to be sitting. So I'm going to go fast. And I want to say that I will not touch on the earlier parts, but the earlier parts do teach us that what we're talking about is a message. He says, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel. Gospel means message. It's a message of good news that I preach to you. So this is something communicated, right? So that's always very important to understand. Um, Then after our verse... It's because when he's talking about Christ dying for our sins, it is a message that people need to hear. After our verse, which is verse 3, he starts talking about the fact that it is a fact. Not just a message, not just a philosophy, it actually happened. And he says this, he bases on simple evidence. Like, I saw him, other people saw him, Christ rose from the dead, not just in our hearts. He legitimately got out of that grave. Um, It's not a philosophy. Those are all important things if I had more time with you, but today we're just going to focus on verse 3, the most important, what he says. I'll I'll read it to you again. Verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. This is the most important thing, not just for church, it just is the most important thing. Christ died for our sins in accordance with scriptures. And if you noticed, you go to any church of any stripe, their symbol is always the cross. It is not bread and fish. It's not a calendar with six days on it. It is definitely not an elephant or a donkey. It is not a manger. It's not an empty tomb. It's not a castle representing a little kingdom that has taken over. It is the cross. The cross is the center of who we are and what we do. And Paul resolved to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him feeding a bunch of people. Now, Jesus Christ and him resurrected. Jesus Christ and him crucified. His death on the cross is of first importance. It's a priority. But before we even get into that, I want to deal with the fact that the beginning of the verse... He does say, I deliver to you as of first importance. He says first importance, which means he's making some things more important than other things. Sometimes we can forget that, but Paul doesn't. The whole book of Corinthians is like that, but if you get a chance to go read back through just 12, 13, 14, 15, it is over and over again. Like faith is good, hope's pretty good, but love's better, right? 
And tongues, I'd love you guys to talk to speak in tongues, but if you have to choose prophecy, I could have one prophecy over a million tongues because it's more important. And then he gets to chapter 15. He says, as of first importance, this message that I deliver to you, Christ died for our sins. That is more important than everything because without that, we're lost. Without him doing that, we're lost. Without hearing that, we're lost. Without trusting in that, we're lost. It's the priority. And oftentimes, we get distracted by things that are less important. Not unimportant, right? Less important. If you want work that matters instead of work that doesn't, if you want to accomplish something instead of just being busy, you have to learn priorities. Because we can spin our wheels. We can do a whole lot and do nothing. And we are finite creatures. Whether we like it or not, we can only do some things. The question isn't, will I miss out? You are going to miss out. That is absolutely certain. In this sermon I'm preaching today, I have cut out so much stuff. You guys are missing out on things by listening to me preach this sermon. You could be doing something else, but you're not. And our whole life is a game of priorities. Every time I choose to do something, I'm choosing to do something else. Every time I choose to not make a choice, I'm making a choice. And these things have to do with priorities. And I, maybe you've heard this before. I heard it from a college professor, so I'd like to give you an illustration that's really helpful and quite true. A college professor told me about another college professor, so who knows how many lines it went down. <clears throat> he said that this guy picked up a jar and he filled it with rocks. And he asked his students, is this jar full? And they said, yep. And then, you know, he's tricking them, ha, huh? he put some gravel in there and shook it down. And a bunch of gravel fit in between those rocks. And he's like, is it full now? Yeah, there's kind of a mix. I even see right now, people shaking their head yes and no. And there's a mix, and he put sand on top, and he started shaking it. And sand fit in afterward. And then he said, is it full now? Nobody answered because they don't like all the tricks. And so he pours water inside of there and it fills in even more. And then he says, what's the lesson? And I remember my teacher, I think didn't like lawyers because he said a law student raised his hand and said, the lesson is that you can always do a little bit more. He said, no, the lesson is if you don't put the big rocks in first, they won't fit. And that is true of jars. It is true of life. It's true of the church. It's true of everything. Now, this, this is helpful because it's a category for us to understand the Bible, to understand our souls, but this is helpful in every aspect of your life. You would be wise to take some time separated from your phone, your computer, the TV, whatever might be distracting you, a dog, and quietly think about what is actually important to you and what you're actually doing. And it might be that your jar is filled with sand, and there's no space for the big rocks. The big rocks that God says, this is more important. And all you care about is this stuff. But there is, there is a category of more important. And we all know somebody incredibly intelligent who seems to just not get ahead in life. They're always behind, unsuccessful, even though they're so smart. And why is it? It's probably because... They can't get their head out of unimportant secondary things. And we all know people, probably, in a church this size, somebody who is biblically true, 
but seems like a heretic, and you just can't quite understand why. Like, everything they're saying is technically true, but you seem like a heretic. And it's because they're so focused on something so unimportant that they have no space for what is important. And that's a real danger, even with doctrine. And Paul is telling us there's some doctrines that are more important. So let this be your very first and foremost. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Because loving something true too much can make you untrue. Because it takes away the room in your finite self for the more important things. And if we don't keep the first things first, what we end up doing is putting our ladder up against a wall and we climb up to the top of the ladder and we realize it was the, the wrong wall. And I'll, I'll give you an example of this because that's kind of arbitrary. It's kind of abstract. I, if we know our priorities, if we put the first things first, then our goals are going to change. What we search for is going to be different. But I, I was teaching some of this stuff at a leadership conference in Ecuador and one of the youth who's running the, the digital... They're sending me out on the internet. And he told me afterwards, he's like, I did that. I did that exact thing. My whole childhood, my goal was to go to the United States. That was it. And you know what? I got a scholarship, and I went to college in Texas. And it almost killed me. Because I climbed all the way to the top of my ladder. I reached the most important thing, and I realized it's not important. It doesn't matter. Now, it is painful to be, have your hopes dashed on the rocks of reality. Let's say, I, I really desperately want to have a family, but nobody will marry me. Like, that is painful, right? But it's worse if you achieve your hopes and find out that they're pointless. And I think that's why a lot of celebrities, when they fall, they fall hard because they have achieved their hopes. Their goal was to be rich and famous and beautiful, and they are. And then they fall hard. I see this to people who are doing their PhDs, and they get done with their PhD, and they're like, this was my whole goal. This was my thing. I was going for 12 years, and I got it. And now what? Nothing. Because it's not worth your life. It's not. There's few things that are worth your life. And so it's way more dangerous. If you've got a wrong priority, it's way more dangerous to achieve it. Because at least if you're busy working at it, you don't realize how pointless it is. And a lot of us have very, very small priorities. And we achieve one and they're like, oh, I got to get another one to, to fill in. But what I'm saying is you need to take some time, slow down and think about what is most important. Because finding success in the wrong thing, putting your ladder on the wrong wall is a hurt that you have a hard time coming back from. A lot of times you work so hard to get that thing that you don't have much time to restart. So think about where you're going. And honestly, with this that we're talking about, I don't care what other beliefs you have if you don't have this one. You can be super-duper reformed, super moral. You can memorize your Bible. You can care for the life of the unborn and the biblical family. You can feed the poor, care for refugees, go to church all the time. You can preach at the church. You can be a missionary. But if Christ didn't die for your sins, you are doomed. This is the center of everything. 
It is the center of the whole Bible. If you notice, it said Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture. And the Scripture, all, all of it beforehand, was preparing this out. It's the subtext. It's behind everything. And think about that subtext. What's behind everything? Because those are usually the big rocks. And Christ dying for our sins in accordance with Scripture is a subtext in the Bible. And it was planned. That was always supposed to be the most important. God didn't just slip into that, ooh, accidentally that's the most important thing. 700 years before Christ was born, Isaiah prophesied. In Isaiah 53, 3 through 6, he said, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Now, before I get into this, we're talking about, I want you to get this concept because we're going to keep going back to this concept. The most important thing is that the hero died for the villain, right? Christ died for our sins. All right, now we'll go back into reading this. Verse 4, chapter 53 of Isaiah. Surely he has borne our griefs. He carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This, if you don't understand, you don't understand the gospel. This, if you don't understand, you, it doesn't matter what you achieve in this life, you will miss it because this is first importance. Our role in the story is causing the problem. His role is the entirety of our salvation through his suffering and death on the cross. It's always the best part of every story that we hear, we're always yearning for it because it is the subtext of our existence. Ever since we became villains, we've always hoped for this hero. And we've always known that he would have to die for us. And so you see it in even stories that are very secular. In the Avengers, Iron Man dies twice. Right? In the first one, he carries a nuke up into a thing and then he sacrifices himself to save everybody. And then it doesn't work. But then the last one, he actually does. Even for your kiddos, in Harry Potter, the only way Voldemort can be defeated is if Harry dies. And why would these people be writing that stuff? Spoiler, I shouldn't have told it. But (laughs) why, why would they be writing this stuff when they adamantly don't love God? Because it is written into who they are. It always has been. It is of first importance, and we know it. And like I said, it's, it's been the story of the scriptures. For Adam and Eve, they broke us, all humanity. And then, because of their sin, they were naked and they were ashamed, and God gave them robes to cover their nakedness. Their sin caused nakedness. Who died? Some animals, because skins don't come off. So these animals died because Adam and Eve sinned. And that starts to be a trajectory of the animals in place but it's not good enough. So Isaac is a promised son, and Abraham's supposed to sacrifice, and when he gets up to the mount, who dies? It's not Isaac, an animal dies in his place. This one doesn't involve death, but I really like it because it's the same theme. Judah, Judah, the end of Genesis, his littlest brother is about to go into prison. He says, don't do it. Don't do it because it's going to break my dad's heart and he'll die. 
let me go in prison instead of him. Why does that touch our heart so much? Because that's exactly the storyline of our universe. I will go instead of you. Obviously, the Passover, spotless lamb that has to die so that the firstborn doesn't. It's remembered forever. The innocent frees the guilty from bondage. Leviticus 4, there's a sin offering. People sin, bull dies, right? Leviticus 5, guilt offering. Man sins, sins, ram dies. The day of atonement is very interesting because priest sins, bull dies. Nation sins, goat dies. Nation sins, and they're shameful and nasty and dirty, and all that shame is confessed on the head of a second goat, and he doesn't get to die. He's sent out into the wilderness to live with it, right? That's called the scapegoat, and that's another sacrifice because sin is not just a penalty of death. It's also filthy and shameful and remembered, something that you don't get to die from. Carrying not his own sin, it's not the goat's fault. It's the nation's fault. We see it in heroes. Samson killed most of his enemies, most of the Philistines in his death, right? Esther, this is a great situation where she says, my people are going to die, so I will risk death before the king to save them. And she says, heroically, I will go, and if I die, I will die. Where Jesus says, I will go and I will die. It was no if. It was always the plan. He told his disciples before it happened, I lay down my life so I can take it back up again. He knew what he was doing. It was the plan. Three of Christ's cries on the cross were directly from Psalms. So when I say it was the plan, it's not the plan from birth. It's the plan from the beginning of time that Christ would die to redeem wicked sinners. And he died for sins, right? This has to be the subtext. It's not just the subtext of the Bible. It has to be the subtext of everything that we are. And it is. It'll scrape its way out. But we fight against it. And we like to let other things be the more important thing. So I, I teach classes on sermons, how, how to preach for my pastors. And they'll, they'll oftentimes, I'll listen to their sermons and I'll leave and I'll say, the most important thing t- that I got out of your message is that I stopped drinking. Or the most important thing is that I stopped lying or whatever. Like, usually even the thing that you end with, this is the key thing. The, the meat of your sermon, yeah, maybe Jesus popped in there, but the most important thing was actually this. The subtext of every sermon has got to be Christ died for our sins. It's the center. He says, even for holiness, and I could give you guys a whole class on this because I love it, but we, you're like, yeah, Christ died for our sins, but I need to change. I need to be more holy. I need to bear some fruit, right? And so Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches, abide in the law of God, and then you'll bear fruit. No. He said, abide in me, in Jesus. Jesus is the power. He's the new affection. He's the the goal we can look at that will transform us. Because the law, weakened by the flesh, can't. It doesn't have the power that we're looking for. This needs to be the subtext of our church. People come and visit. I don't know a lot of people here, so perhaps you're a visitor, and perhaps you're saying, the most important thing to these guys is that somebody died, right? And that would be a good thing. I would want them to understand it more, but I want them to say the most important thing to them is this, or the subtext of every Christian. It's really easy to get lost in other things, 
But you as an individual, if you are a Christ follower, your subtext, your most important thing should be not, I am better than you. That would be kind of moralism. Or, I know more than you. That would be reformed moralism. It should be, Christ died for my sins. That would be Christianity. And when people hang out with you, they leave thinking, wow, Christ died for that guy's sins. I mean, you don't have to be, I'm, right now I can imagine there's gears working. Like, oh, what, how do I have to communicate that to people? And every time they hang out with me, I need to, to make them think that. No. But if this is really the center, the joy that you find, the sorrow that you feel, is this. It's going to reflect when people are hanging out with you. So, in this, understanding that Christ died for our sins, we have to know that our sin must have been exceedingly heinous to kill Jesus. And God must be extremely concerned with holiness if the price of sin is death. Even just like, don't eat fruit from that tree. Like, if our kids did that, we'd be like, come on, no candy afterwards. No, but the price is death because God is more pure than we are. He's holy. But we also have to understand that God must really, really love us. If his reaction to our treachery, that's not a one-time event, it is a constant event. His reaction is to give up his son, to give up his own life, to give up himself, to save us. You would have to be hard to not be moved by this. And that's an extremely powerful missions motivator. So I'm a missionary. Like, as people are nasty, I can realize I'm worse to a much nicer person. And he died for me instead of just getting annoyed and abandoning me. That, that might be good for friends, parents. I'm on the verge of just giving up on you. God didn't. And if you've spilled blood for your children, um, you're still alive. So keep on, keep on spilling your blood. But we know that God's love is amazing because Christ died for our sins. Now, I will ask you who died, and you guys don't have to answer, but in your head you're thinking Christ, right? But it's important that we know who Christ is because there's a lot of people who follow Christ. But the Christ who died for us, the Christ revealed in the Bible, is man. He is 100% man. He is also 100% God. And this fact changes everything about that death on that cross. It changes our salvation. Man must die for man's sins. An animal could never pay. We learned that. But man is finite. That's my whole argument in my first section. We can't pay an eternal God an eternal debt. We can't do it. It would take us eternity. And that payment time would be called hell. But... Eternal God can pay the eternal God an eternal debt and say it is finished because it is. And it can be done. And that's why it is so terribly important that Christ died for our sins, not a sheep. And God deserves glory for that. And that's another mission's motivator. Because there's a lot of people who are not giving God glory for who he is. And he deserves it. And now I want you guys to know that on the cross, Christ did not only make pardon for sinners. He did protect needy creatures. He did 
um, defeat an enemy, that he was prophesied that he would defeat and destroy. But you must understand, we have enemies, but our most terrible enemy, our greatest enemy that we've ever faced is God himself. And what Christ did on the cross was make us friends. He didn't destroy an enemy in that situation. Yeah, I mean, the devil's terrible, right? The world is awful. Our own flesh, just, just nasty. But I would much rather be against them than the God of the universe. And because of what Christ did on the cross, I'm not against God. God's for me, against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And I join together with him. And we have other problems, but we need to keep the first thing, as I said before, the first thing. We need to focus on what he died for, our sins. That is our biggest problem. And I know in our culture we might say, it's not a sin, it was just a crime. I paid my time, I did my dues, and now it's done. It's over. But that is a very worldly sense, because there is one who doesn't forget. But others might say, it's, just, it's not a sin, it's a sickness. The DSM told me I have oppositional defiance disorder, and that's why I can't listen to people who have authority. And, and I'm like, well, I don't doubt that you can't on your own. There's a lot of things we can't do, but God has asked you not to. <laughs> that God has asked you to listen to these authorities. And there's all types of diseases or sins that we can call diseases. But what we do, those first two are kind of old. Even the crime thing and paying your dues, that's really old. And the disease thing is getting a bit older nowadays. And I say nowadays, the last 150 years. We deny sin. It's just not even there anymore. G.K. Chesterton, an old British writer, newspaper writer, said, if a man can exquisitely desire to skin a cat, and he can, we have a problem that the Christians have traditionally said is a problem between man and his creator. Or the atheists had said that there is no God. But nowadays, we're denying that cats exist. And that doesn't get us anywhere because denial only hides something that will claw its way out. And sin inside of our hearts, no matter what we use to deny it, it finds a way out. And usually it's anxious tension because we know that we're doing wrong and it hurts inside. And I'll talk to you this. All cultures have this and they look different in different cultures. In our culture, guilt is the big one. So we see the side effect of sin as mainly guilt and we understand it. Um as something that needs to be paid back. It needs to be paid back. And that's why our false gospel that's so powerful here is works-based false gospel. I have sinned and I will pay you back, God. And what the gospel tells you is that you cannot. You will never be able to pay the price. But Jesus, like I said, who is infinite, can. And he did for everyone who would trust in him. To Telestai, it is finished, paid in full. We have a bad record, he has a good one, and he switches it. Now, that's our culture. Other cultures, when they think of sin, when they have side effects of sin, their concern is different. Big, broad swath will be more focused on shame. And we're learning this one now in the United States. We used to be very guilt culture, but we're getting more and more shame culture, and I think that has something to do with Facebook um, and people rating us as a person, I like you, I don't like you. And that, that gets to us, and we start to consider how we fit in the group. And the false gospel that is brought to shame is inclusivism. 
don't judge, right? And kind of getting away from right and wrong in those ways. We accept you exactly how you are. Whereas the gospel says, we accept you as you are, despite who you are, to change who you are. Because God has better for you. It doesn't leave you at we accept you as you are. But the shame concept goes like this. We are unaccepted. We're outsiders. We don't fit in. And then the gospel comes in and Christ says, I went outside the camp. I was crucified outside the city gates to bring you in. Remember that scapegoat? I was the better scapegoat. They mocked at me. They said, if you're Christ, get down from that cross. They took all my clothes and jeered. And did I deserve it? No, but you did. And I took that. I took that shame. And we'll say, no, you're filthy. We're too dirty to be close to the Holy One. And it's true, except for the fact that Jesus says, I will clean them the only possible way with my blood. The only thing that can wash away the stains of sin. But we say we have a bad name. We're notorious. It's another shame category. And it's interesting because you guys might not think about this. If I had a bunch of time, I'd go into it. But shame is all over the Bible. You see, we all have sinned, right? And fallen short of the legal requirements of God. No. It actually says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're dishonorable, and he is honorable, and we don't fit in because we're too dirty. But he says, I will give you a new name. You will be part of my family. I will call you brother. I will call you friend. I will invite you to live in my home. But he had to die for this to happen. Or he might just say, I'm bad. Everybody knows that I don't measure up. And I will tell you, this is a good start. So if you're thinking that, it's a good start. Because if you don't think that at some point in time, you will never accept the fact that Christ agreed with you and that's why he died for you. Because of love for you. Now there's another, I talked about guilt, I talked about shame. There's another category, side effect of sin that's widely understood in a lot of areas and more and more here as well, and that's fear. Sin causes fear. And you'll see the, the wicked flee when nobody pursues them because sin causes fear a lot of times that comes out in power it comes out in security future um the false gospel that comes to our need to be protected our need to be cared for our need to be provided for the false gospel that comes to fear is the prosperity gospel and so that one is very strong it's a false answer to a real need and that need is fear and it includes things like health wealth spiritual power really any kind of power because health and wealth are all powers. <clears throat> and the idea is that I have an enemy who seeks my destruction. And Jesus says, I overcame Satan. I have overcome the world because of the cross. And because of the cross, your most powerful enemy, like I said earlier, is now your friend. And I grew up with a brother who is six, seven, three hundred 300 pounds and ripped. He can still curl me. Okay, I say ripped. He's got a layer of, of blubber um, like I do. But... He was so big and nine years older than me. I never got in trouble. Because if I would run away from somebody who wanted to beat me up, TJ would be there. And he would take care of me. Now, this seems silly to us because we're like, we don't need taken care of. We're Americans. There will come a time where you need to be taken care of. And the, the powerful protector who can care for you 
is God himself. And the only reason that God will, the holy, true God, is because Jesus paid for that. Jesus made that possible on the cross. But you might say, I'm broken. My family's broken. My life is broken. And I can't do it. And Jesus says, I was broken. And behold, I'm making all things new. And that's the cross. So what's left for us to do now? Talking about all this stuff. We have to, to focus on the fact that the verse says, Christ died for our sins. Right? So that's the next step that must be understood. It's not Christ died for their sins. Christ died for our sins. We must own it. We have to own it. Otherwise, we have no hope in this. If Christ died for their sins, I'm not concerned about them or Christ, but when I realize I'm the problem, that changes everything. Christ died for me. And you can't understand any of this unless you're regularly coming to grips with what the Bible teaches about holiness, right? What the Bible teaches about the law, what the Bible teaches about how your family should be, how your life should be, how your marriage should be. And the reason it teaches that is not to say, try harder, be better. The reason it teaches that is to show us the law is a, a teacher that leads us to Christ. To show us we are not making it. And then we're more and more thankful for what Christ has done for us. Because I've been driving around the country with my four kids and my wife in a minivan. And we sleep in a tent at night in between, you know, St. Louis and Vegas. And that leads to grumpiness and bad fathering. And when I see that in a sinful guy, I say, thank you, Christ. Thank you, Christ, because I am not worthy. And I'm not. But he died for my sins. And that's something that you'll spend the rest of your life studying into as you learn more and more about how to be holy, how to be whatever role you have. And as you see your own failures in it, I almost said siempre, always go back to the truth that Christ died for those sins. Now, I would love to spend hours and hours, but I know you guys have lunches to get to, so I'll have some applications of how this applies to our life, specifically how this applies to missions, because I'm the missionary talk. So um, we're going to have some missions. The cross, Christ dying for our sins, is the message of missions. Whatever else you're doing in missions, if this message is not proclaimed, Frequently, clearly, accurately, you're not doing missions. Now, you could probably talk for hours about this, but there is a need. We want humanity to have their greatest need filled. We want to care for them. Their greatest need is that their sins be forgiven, that they be cleansed. That is the most important thing. And if they have the whole world and they don't have Jesus, they have nothing. But if they have Jesus and they don't have anything else, they have everything, though it might be slow in coming. And I'm not saying that lesser goods are bad. Realize that I went and lived in an orphanage and fed orphans, bananas, right? I, if you were here for the aerial class, I'm not against that. But it is secondary. It is not the first thing. And if the lesser goods 
fall by the wayside, and they always will. If the smaller stones don't get into the jar, there's always going to be some choice of that. You still have the bigger stone. And you might say, yeah, but I lost that little one. And I, I'm going to give you a quote from C.S. Lewis in his essay, More, or Why I'm Not a Pacifist, to explain some of our dilemma here. He said, we were talking about the war, you know, and people say, well, you, you've won a war, but that doesn't, cause, that doesn't fix the racism. It doesn't fix any of this stuff. And he said, it's, it's like a man being saved from a man-eating tiger. It's like, oh, you got, you got saved, huh? But what's the good old chap? Hasn't done anything about your rheumatism. And a lot of times, we're like, just, just get eaten by the tiger because you're going to have rheumatism if you get saved. Right? And sometimes we have to throw away good things. We have to. And that's a priority thing. And I'm not going to tell you what to throw away and what not to throw away, but think about it. Think about your life, your time, your energy, your money, your thought power. What are you giving it to? All right. Also, only the pure gospel, that's kind of represented in this, this verse, saves. Not a gospel where the problem is something besides sin. A lot of the gospels out there say, Jesus Christ died for you so that you can have a better job, so that you can no longer have rheumatism, so that you, whatever, so that your marriage will be better. Jesus Christ died for you, so you'll stop being an alcoholic. That's, that's not the gospel. Jesus Christ died for our sins. And there's side effects. Your marriage will get better. You'll stop being an alcoholic. There's, there's side effects. But the true gospel is that we are saved from sin. And it's not a gospel with another savior either. Jesus Christ is a prophet who teaches you the way to salvation. I, I'm telling you, that's, that's Muslim doctrine, Right? Um, but it's also a lot of Christian doctrine. And a lot of times people are like, hey, Jesus is a very wise person who leads me, and I'm telling you, no, he is God himself, and he died for your sins. Not, he didn't give you a road to stop sinning. He did much more. He did what you can't. You were dead. He brought you life through his own death. Assuming the gospel, assuming this message doesn't save. And there's a, a preacher named Kevin DeYoung who talked about it in a really eloquent way. He brought up Weekend at Bernie's, and he said, there's a movie called Weekend at Bernie's. I still haven't seen it, but apparently the plot is that um, two guys find their boss dead, and they have to pretend that he's alive to keep the mob from getting them. And they're, they're cruising around, holding him up and acting like he's alive, and he's got sunglasses on. And then Kevin DeYoung said, woe be unto us if our mission strategy amounts to the same thing, going into the world to help spiritually dead people look a little bit more alive. Woe be unto us if that's our mission. And a lot of times, our mission, our ministry, is to go out and get people to act a little bit more Christian, which is the same thing as picking up Bernie's old dead arm. It doesn't help. What Bernie needs is life. What the nations need is life. Nothing less than new creation. So remember that if there is life inside of a tree, fruit will come. But if you put fruit onto a tree, life will not come. And that can be your little hold on to it ministry plan as you're going out to do ministry wherever you do ministry. You need the tree to have life if you want fruit to come out. And that kind of works itself out in a lot of ways. But also this teaches us, this whole message teaches us that the power is not in the missionary or the minister. It's in the message. 
Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. What's the power of God? The missionary. No, no, it's not the missionary. It's the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for salvation, and that's why we can send people who are schmucks and can't do it on their own and are currently looking for teams and people to help them. So, I mean, keep, keep that in mind. You know, guys, if you're going back there, if you're thinking about going on the mission field, we'd love some teammates. Um, no, but this reminds us that this power is not our own, but we wield a power that can bring life into death. We wield that power every time we preach the gospel. And so we can read Ezekiel and we can think about how he prophesied to dry bones and those dry bones grew sinews and muscle and flesh and walked and a living army came up out of the dead and we can say, I could do that. Not because I'm awesome, but because this gospel is. And then when we're struggling and hopeless and whatever we might be struggling and hopeless about, we can say, I haven't done it. I haven't lived up. I've messed everything up. But it's not about something that I do. It's about something that Jesus Christ has done. And he's done it. He died for our sins. So let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for loving your sinful people, for coming to us repeatedly, for pursuing us, for ultimately dying for our sins and then continuing to pursue us. I pray, Lord, that if there's anybody here who doesn't know you, that they would. I pray, Lord, that if there's anybody here whose priorities are off, which is everybody, that you would help all of us. I pray that you would help us to focus on what's important and what's not, and to rejoice in what you have done on the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.